0: Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here today to pick up your word, Um, the words that you inspired Moses to record so long ago for our benefit. Lord, I ask your blessing on this lesson, that we would learn more about you, who you are, more about who we are, and as usual, Lord, we pray that our response to what we hear from your revelation would be glorifying you. Uh, it's, It's in your son Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. So as we talked about last week, the departure from Israel, of Israel, from Egypt, is the major historical dominant fact of the book of Exodus, and that's why it's called Exodus, because Exodus means mass departure. And like we talked about, the author of the book of Exodus, of course, is Moses, and Scripture affirms that, Jesus Christ the Messiah affirmed that. And by now, as we finished up in chapter 18 last week, we had seen that God indeed had fulfilled at least one of his promises he made to Abram many years ago in that he had made Israel, this fledgling nation, into a great nation of over 2 million people. But that's not all that he had promised Abram. So what we're going to do, just briefly, because this is really important, we're going to go back and revisit that Abrahamic covenant. This is really important uh, even though it was in Genesis 17, if you want to go there since i don 't have slide, Genesis 17 verses six through eight. And the reason I want to hit on this is because Moses seems to have this Abrahamic covenant in the back of his mind as he 's tracing the history of the relationship of God with his chosen people, Israel. So God tells Abram in the Abrahamic covenant, this is exodus, i 'm sorry, Genesis 17 verses six through eight. will be their God. So God tells Abraham, Abram at the time, that this covenant will be an everlasting covenant. You look back in there, you can see it says everlasting, meaning it can't be broken. You see, and I want to contrast this with the covenant we're about to get, the Mosaic covenant. This covenant is a unilateral covenant. God is the one assuring abram what he's going to do if you look in this passage you see the phrase five times god says i will i will i will i will i will i will do these things it's unilateral he's bound himself to doing what he says he's going to do it doesn't matter what the israelites do this is very important now as we come to exodus chapter 19 we're gonna we're gonna remember that he's shown israel that he keeps his promises and now at exodus 19 i like to time stamp these things it's been about three months since the Passover. So they've journeyed three months to get to where they are now. So far, God's shown them, like He had promised them, that He alone is God. There is none other like Him in all the earth. He's rescued them from out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them miraculously through the Red Sea on dry land, saving them from the pursuing Egyptian army. And so, Now you could say, up through the first 18 chapters, we've been on kind of a fast-paced, breathless ride of exciting events. Remember we read through Exodus chapter 14, the, the miraculous salvation through the Red Sea. But now, as we come to chapter 19 of Exodus, the pace slows down a little bit. And now we're about to learn of this new covenant relationship that God has with Israel. So here, Moses records for us everything that happened in the nation of Israel, over the next nine months. So it's kind of interesting to note that after that exodus out of Egypt, after the Passover, actually one month, I'm sorry, one year later the tabernacle is going to be built. So nine months here, three months to get here. Uh, We're going to cover the next nine months here. So what we're going to talk about, there are going to be four subtitles. First we're going to talk about the introduction to this Mosaic covenant. and That's going to include the giving of the law, and all the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. This is where they're going to honor this new covenant relationship with God, where they're going to worship Him. That's the second thing, the instructions for the tabernacle. Then we're going to look at Israel's very rapid violation of this brand new covenant and then God's response. And then finally, we're going to see God's mercy and grace in renewing this covenant despite their disobedience and the moving forward of the building of this place of worship. So those are the things we're going to cover. So let's pick off where we left off last week. We were in Rephidim. They finished their three-month journey through the wilderness out of Egypt. And now they're at a place called Horeb, which in Scripture it's called the Mountain of God. We know it as Mount Sinai, so I'm going to call it Mount Sinai. Some versions call it Horeb. And this was an area that was very familiar to Moses. If you recall, he'd actually lived here most of his adult life. Remember last last week we talked about he had struck down an Egyptian man who was beating a Hebrew man. And now he was wanted for murder. He had to get out of there and he fled to Midian, which is right here in this area. It was here at the foot of Mount Sinai where God had spoken to Moses out of that burning bush. And he said, this was back in Exodus 3, a little review here. I'm choosing you, Moses, to lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. You remember Moses' response, are you sure you've got the right guy? And then God tells him this. This is important to pick up where we're at in Exodus 19. I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And here he is again in chapter 19, three months out of the journey out of Egypt, here they were, camped right at the foot of Mount Sinai. What God has said has come to pass. And God's now about to reveal this second covenant with Israel. This time he's going to give it to Moses, not to Abraham. And this is important because listen to what God's going to say to them. He is doing something new now. Now that He's rescued him. So if you want to turn to Exodus 19, if you're not already there, we're going to look in verses Five through seven. We'll read what Moses gets to tell the people. God's about to propose a new level in the relationship. He says this in Exodus 19:5 through seven. Now therefore, if you indeed my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured position among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. So, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So, here, it's it's almost like God is offering Israel a proposal. If they obey him, he'll bless them. So, how does Israel respond to this proposal? They say yes. Look at Exodus 19 verse 8 now. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses reported these words back to the Lord. So again, it's almost like Moses has said, I want you to be mine. Here's what I will do for you if you obey my um, conditions of this proposal. At this point you could almost say it's like a wedding proposal. Two parties are entering into a new level of relationship. And if you'll notice here, look in your your text at verse 6, God has promised to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then if they're obedient to his law, in verse 5, they'll be his chosen people and he'll, he'll bless them. And inherent in this promise is that if they don't obey his promises, they will not be blessed. Again, this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant, because it was first given to Moses. By the way, some people call it the the Sinai Covenant, but uh, that's just where it was given. This was given to Moses, the leader of Israel at the time. Let's continue reading in chapter 19, since you're there already. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. And this is going to help us understand the significance of what is about to happen as God has said, here is what I want to do. Here's what we're going to do next in our relationship. Listen to what he tells them. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So he's credentialing Moses in their eyes. They're going to follow him and know. When Moses told the words of the, of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Okay, now go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. If you look at verse 20 there in chapter 19, God comes down to Mount Sinai, and he calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And this is where Moses is given the law of God. Chapter 20 shows us the giving of the Ten Commandments, what we know as the moral law. And then in chapters 21 through 23, it's followed by the giving of what people call the civil laws. Uh, included in the civil laws are laws regarding slavery. It's as we've pointed out before; these are not um, slavery is not defined as chattel slavery of the 16, 17, 1800s. It's more like indentured servitude. Uh, these sections also in the civil law includes personal injury laws, property laws, laws concerning morality, finance laws, laws regarding offerings, laws concerning civil obligations, and laws regarding the festivals and the Sabbath. So this Mosaic Covenant, this is important to understand, it was centered around the giving of God's divine law to his chosen people, Israel. But why? This is a good question. Why are these laws so important in this new covenant relationship? So the question is, were they meant to save Israel? We should all know that the answer to that is no, the law was never meant to be salvific. We're going to talk about this just for a second here. We do have the benefit Of the New Testament and you don't have to go there but Galatians 3 says this law that they were just given was to serve as a guardian some versions say as a tutor some versions say as a schoolmaster pointing the way towards the coming of Christ you might recall also in Romans 3 20 this is pertinent to this giving of the law Paul wrote by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin this is a very important concept to understand also in Romans 7 7 Paul wrote I would not have known sin except through the law so God is giving Israel this incredible gift of the law to reveal to them their sinfulness and their need for a savior so you could say Israel needed these laws it wasn't just about rules And by the way, this law that God gave them here at Mount Sinai is the very law that Jesus said He didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. This is also really important to keep in mind so that we don't get confused in thinking that, you know, some people, for some reason, when they read the Old Testament, they think that the law could have been salvific to some. It never was to any of the people in Israel, anybody in the Old Testament. They were never saved through the law. The Bible has been very clear about this all the way through. Salvation is by faith, through God's grace only. Um, Again, in Galatians 3.18, it says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. So the promised inheritance here in Galatians is talking about is the blessing of salvation. And God had promised Abraham that he'd be saved through this faith. Inherent in the covenant that Moses had given them, again, was that disobedience would result in punishment. The law said that. But Christ took the punishment. We know he fulfilled the law, provided atonement for sin for all who believe. So God's promise of blessing, this is very important, the promise of blessing through faith was still in effect as he's giving them the law here. Now, after receiving this law... And and you can kind of look at all this law as an outlining of this new covenant relationship. These are the conditions by which the the, um, relationship's going to operate. Now Israel needed to ratify the covenant. So Moses reads aloud to them all the words of the law, all of these chapters that God had given them to obey. And we see the response, if you want to turn to Exodus 24, Verse 7. Exodus 24, verse 7, after reading all the words aloud to the people, Moses says, what do you say? And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And then in the next verse, Moses, now they had sacrificed some oxen at this point, Moses takes the blood from those sacrificed oxen, and he throws it on the people and says, behold, the blood of the covenant of the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this covenant was... Sealed in blood, just like the Abrahamic covenant. When God cut those animal pieces in half, blood, it's, it's what they used to say, to cut a covenant. and then it was sealed in blood. So this was just as binding as was the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you move forward to Exodus 25-31. through 31, God gives Moses some very, very detailed instructions on how, based on this new relationship, God is now going to humble himself and come down and dwell among them. So he gives them instructions in Exodus 25-31 through on how they can build this place for him to dwell. They're very detailed instructions. We've all read through these. After all, if God's going to dwell among his people, it needs to be perfect. It needs to reflect his perfection, his glory, and he's worthy of it. This place has to be perfect the way he desires it to be, and he deserves that. So Moses goes back up on the mountain. We know this story. For 40 days and 40 nights, he's recording all of these immaculate details for the building of the temple and what the priests need to do and what they need to wear. And while he's up there, some of the people decide, well, Moses may not be coming back. Maybe our God has abandoned us. And as Moses is about to get up and come back down the mountain, after 40 days and nights, he gets some news. God tells him this. Go to chapter 32. Verses 7-10. through 10. Exodus 32, 7-10. through 10, God tells Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen these people, And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So God was about to do to Israel what he had done to the people during Noah's great flood. And he had every right to do this. He was going to get rid of all of them. And since Moses, as we found out last week, Moses is a descendant of Abraham. So according to God's covenant with Abraham, he said, I'll make a great nation from you. Moses was still eligible for that. But the covenant this time, we have to understand, this is different than the Abrahamic covenant. This one is not a unilateral, unconditional promise that God had sworn to uphold, regardless of what Israel did. This covenant, again, the, the Mosaic covenant, was a bilateral, meaning there were two parties involved, and it was a conditional covenant, meaning... That the terms of what would happen were dictated by the actions of the people of Israel. Again, the blessings that were promised were directly related to Israel's obedience. If they obeyed, God it would bless them. If They disobeyed, God it would punish them. And here, at the foot of Mount Sinai, within just weeks of when they had ratified this covenant, and they said, "Everything that you say, we'll do. We should do. We will do." They violated it. They violated this new covenant within weeks. And they began worshiping another god. They'd made an idol. We all know this story very well. A golden calf to worship, which was an egregious sin against the very god who had just miraculously brought them out of slavery and took them through the Red Sea and saved them from starvation and dying of thirst in the wilderness. And God is angry. Immensely angry. And he moves immediately again to show them that he's a god Who honors his end of the covenant? He roots out the guilty parties. There were about 3,000 men, it turns out, whose hearts obviously had turned against God. And they said, We got to go do this. We got to make this God. And God has them executed by the sword. And then he sends a plague on all the people because the people had done nothing to stand up against these 3,000 men that led this movement against God. And God is so angry with Israel. Now he tells them, just leave this place. Leave Sinai. You want that promised land? You go there yourselves. You're not going to go with me. I will no longer protect you. And this scares them to death. They know there's no way that they're going to survive without God leading them. And Moses intercedes. He goes to God and he pleads with him, be merciful, God. This is your people that you promised to make a distinct holy nation to stand apart from all the other people. And God is a merciful God and he does love them and he has made promises to them and he doesn't forget his promises does he? In chapter 34 he renews his covenant with Israel. He does love them. In fact, if you look through the book of I like to do these little things. Look through the entire book of Exodus the children of Israel, or the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, they're mentioned 122 times. God cares about them. They're very central to this. He does love them. He renews His covenant. He says, now, not only is He going to deliver them to the land that He had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, He's also going to drive out the pagan nations from before Israel, the pagan nations that are in that land. But He reminds them, You're not going to make any agreements with them, no covenants with the pagans, and you will not worship any of their false gods. And by now, Israel is surely scared to death. And now, once again, God returns his focus to the building of the tabernacle. And now we move to chapter 35. Chapters 35 through 39, and partly into 40, detail the construction of the tabernacle. This was to be financed, by both a free will offering from the people and a census tax they went and numbered all the people and they all had to give a little bit of silver between the offering and the tax more than enough was received it says to build this tabernacle and then the task of putting this tabernacle together was given to two very skilled men Bezalel and Oholiab i always think of Oholiab for some reason i think of Al Negan because they were skilled craftsmen if we didn't have Al Negan He's our Oholiab, I like to joke, because half the things that we did in this church building wouldn't have been possible without a skilled craftsman like him. But these were men that were skilled with, uh, blessed with great skill and wisdom from the Lord. They were very experienced craftsmen. They were to oversee the teams of other skilled workers who would follow these detailed instructions for putting the tabernacle together. And as you read through these chapters, we begin to notice something. This is starting in chapter 35 through 40 it seemed to be an exact repeat of what God had already given Moses in chapters 25 through 31. Did you ever notice that? Here in chapters 35 through 40, we see a second extensive litany of measurements and materials, types of carpentry skills required for the tabernacle, and another very extensive detailed list of what the priests should do and what they should wear. So the question is, why? Why Is Moses given this information a second time? And why does he record it a second time? We all know that this information is here for a reason. We all remember 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, All scripture is breathed out by God and suitable for, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we also know that anytime God repeats something, it is important, right? So there's a reason all this information in chapters 35 through 40 has has been repeated repeated. It's obviously important enough for God to have Moses record it for our benefit. Some Bible commentaries say that there are things mentioned in this first uh, section, that's 25 through 31, that aren't mentioned in the last five chapters. And I went to see if this was true. I read through. If you look at all the little subtitles in like my ESV Bible, maybe yours is the Bible, and you do a list and you go and look for every single one of them in the second uh, list of chapters, you can find mention, at least mention of every single one of them. They are all there. So I don't agree that some things are not repeated in the second list. For example, they say that you you won't find the census tax. Go to chapter 30. In there, it talks about a census tax. And they say, well, if you look in chapters 35 through 40, you're not going to find the census tax. But guess what? Um, if you le- read through uh, chapter 38, a little subtitle in the ESV Bible says, the materials for the tabernacle, it lists all the vast sums of silver and gold that had been accumulated for the building of the temple. It never says, oh, these came from the freewill offering. It's just an accounting, a list of the inventory of all the gold and silver. What did the people give during the census tax? Silver. So logically, it makes sense that that census tax would have been included because now they're assessing and detailing all of the things that were built up that the people had been obligated to give or given the free will offering. So what's the difference then between these two sections? The first list of detailed instructions in, in 25 through 30 and then 35 through 40. As it turns out, and this might help as you read through this, the verb tense actually changes between these two sections. You see in 25 through 31, God's giving the people a checklist of instructions that they have to complete. The verb tense is all future. In the second list, uh, uh, 35 through 40, Moses is checking off the boxes to show the, uh, everything had been completed. So, for example, uh, we can look at the instructions of the building of the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 25. And again, in my ESV Bible, it seems like it's not there. Uh, there's no little subtitle in my Bible. It says, uh, the making of the Ark of the Covenant. There's no little heading, heading there. But if you go to verse 10 in, in chapter 25, it says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Future tense. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Okay, now, flip back to chapter 37, verse 1. You'll see the change in, in uh, tense. It says, Bezalel made an ark of acacia wood. Past tense. Isn't that neat? One's future tense, one's past tense. So God told them to do um, thousands of of to-do items, and they did every single one of them, exactly as as it had been dictated, right down to the jot and tittle. That's why, okay, now skip to chapter 40. Look in verse 19, all the way down to verse 32, you see uh, a little phrase repeated seven different times noting that these things were completed as the Lord had commanded Moses seven different times. And then look in verse 33 of chapter 40. It says, So Moses finished the work. But this is not the only reason these things have been repeated. It's not just so we can see past tense, future, or future tense, past tense, checklist, da 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 done. Beyond just showing that they'd finished all this work, there's another really important reason these details are given to us a second time. More importantly, we know that the tabernacle provides a very clear illustration of Emmanuel, which means God with us. seems that Moses wants to spend a lot of time and attention to detail because this is a very important, very special place of worship. This is where God's people will draw near to his glory. This is no ordinary place of worship I had some artist renditions of the tabernacle. You've all seen them before. It was a tent-like structure that was surrounded by curtains in a courtyard. And the tabernacle tent itself would have two areas. You have the holy place and then the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it had to be built just right, right down to the last detail. Again, it turns out this was going to be, we have this now we know, this is going to be a picture, an illustration of the, the, um, the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We learn this from the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. So if you want to flip to Hebrews chapter 9 real quick, let's read this real quick. This is so pertinent to the building of this tabernacle. And why Moses spent so much time detailing it, not once but twice. Hebrews 9, 8-12. It's talking about the tabernacle. So picture the tabernacle in your mind with two places. Hebrews 9, 8 through 12. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And of course, that time will be the reformation when everything is made new again. Going on in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. But for now, they have the tabernacle. And for now, at least for the next 450 years, this will be where they worship God until they move into Jerusalem and build a temple, which is going to be a more permanent place of worship. Of course, we know some of the key elements in the temple. Ark of the Covenant, the Table of the Bread of Presence golden lampstand, which the Jewish people call the menorah. There was the altar of incense and then very importantly well the high priest's holy garments but very importantly we also have the altar of the burnt offering which some Bibles call the bronze altar. And you can picture this thing the bronze altar if you, if you think about it was kind of a rectangular courtyard. And the, the Israelites would come in through the curtains. The tabernacle was in the back part of the courtyard and right in front of them was this bronze altar. It so was the first thing that they would encounter as they walked into this courtyard. And it served as an illustration that sinners cannot approach the holy presence of the Lord until they first came to a place of sacrifice where atonement for sin is made. And this altar always stood open to accept the guilt of any Israelite who desired to come close to God. And it was continually blazing with fire and it was continually covered with the blood from the animal sacrifices. So this is where they were taught the concept of the offering of an innocent life in their place, way back here at the tabernacle. So the only way they could have their sins atoned for was by the giving of a blood sacrifice. So now with the benefit of the New Testament scriptures, once again, we understand that the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant of course, we know it didn't really take away the sins. It was, it was at this point, in the, some of you that have been through the journey to Judea were the tour guides, we would come to this bronze altar and we'd say these animal sacrifices only covered the sins of the people temporarily. And so they had to be offered continually. What they still really needed was the perfect Redeemer, the perfect sacrifice who could fulfill God's law fully and remove the debt of sin permanently. So again, in the book of Hebrews, we learn that these sacrifices were just a foreshadowing of the bearing of sin by Christ, perfect high priest who was also the perfect sacrifice. Way back there, God's foreshadowing this and illustrating this. So now we know, we've talked a lot about the Mosaic Covenant. We know that the Mosaic Covenant by itself, with all of its laws and sacrifices, couldn't save anyone. It's not that there's a problem with the law itself, we know the law is perfect, and we know that it was given by a holy God, but the law didn't have the power to save as we have established. And we don't have to read very far in the Old Testament to know that the Israelites were just like us. They could never fully be obedient to the law. They were completely unable to obey completely. And now, we come to the end of the, books of, the book of Exodus. The tabernacle and its furnishings are complete, And in chapter 40, the glory of God is going to fill the structure. So let's move to chapter 40. Let's look at the concluding verses as God is about to take up residence among his people. So Exodus 40. Let's look at verses 34 through 38, and we'll read these. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle of the glory of God filling the tabernacle. And we must remember this. It's his incredible, merciful, and gracious love that compels him to humble himself, to come down and dwell in the midst of his sinful and disobedient, yet his chosen people. What an incredible ending to the story. And that's where we're going to close today. But I'd like to paraphrase a few thoughts that our pastor gave us back in July of 2020 at the Double Tree Hotel. This was when J.D. said, we're gonna preach through this book of Exodus. So I'm gonna paraphrase some of his thoughts as he introduced the book. I think these served really well as concluding statements. He said, time and time again, we see the statement throughout the Old Testament scriptures. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. And time and time again, we see reference to the law. And time and time again, we see reference to the tabernacle. Where do all these things come from? Book of Exodus. Exodus is the birth of this nation. The events recorded here by Moses are foundational for the understanding of this nation of Israel. But they also reveal, as J.D. pointed out to us, the nature of God's redemptive plan. At every stage in this plan, God addresses what's been lost through sin. And at every stage, it demonstrates faithfulness to his covenant promises. And it signals for us what God plans to do more perfectly and more fully through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So like I mentioned last week at the conclusion of the first part of the book of Exodus, once we understand Israel's origin story, the rest of the Bible begins to make a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? And also we see many parallels in Exodus. We've mentioned just a few, and these aren't coincidental. These are the fingerprints of God. Jesus is being foreshadowed here. He is the representative of the nation of Israel. Everything that God promised to do through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So we will see the glory of the Messiah in the New Testament more clearly. Again, if we grasp the foundational historical truths Moses had recorded for our benefit here. And that's where we have to end for now. But this is going to set us up really nicely for Michael Dietzel's lesson next week, as he's going to survey the book of Leviticus, which answers this very important question. How can a sinful people survive with a holy God in their midst? So I encourage you to come back for that. And we're dismissed for now, but Let's come back here in about 15 minutes and we'll worship this holy, awesome God.